Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factor, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, we've got a fantastic guest. This is a wonderful person and friend of mine who happens to be a brilliant scientist, uh, behavioral scientist. Her name is Dr. Beth Carlin. I'm going to read her bio. She is the founder and CEO of the Sea Change Institute, a research and practice institute devoted to studying and shaping behavior change for the greater good. Her current projects focus on health equity, media representation, and community energy programs. Beth earned her BA in psychology, master's in public policy, and PhD in social ecology with an emphasis in social psychology. She probably lives in Los Angeles without a car. Beth describes her superpower as applying behavioral science insights and methods to understand, measure, and influence behavior. And with that, let's welcome Beth onto the show. Hi, Beth. Hi there. Good to see you, Boris. Great to see you this morning. Thanks so much for getting up so early in Los Angeles to do this with me today. So I read your impressive bio. Could you please uh, share your story with us a little bit? Sure. I actually started my career right after college in nonprofits. I worked at a volunteer center um, and I spent the next decade in education and I loved the work I was doing. I ended up after about eight years as a high school activities director and I started to realize that I could have as much influence on young people, on my students outside of the classroom as in. So I started thinking a lot about the power of culture to influence people. Um, and I just found myself making balloon arches during the day and then reading the New York Times about climate change on the weekend and just said, I want to go to there. I realized that um, my, I mean, my undergraduate was in psychology. I'd always studied psychology, but I realized that culture matters and that understanding and influencing people to take action for huge issues like genocide and social justice and climate change could be done through behavioral science. So I went back to school um, and got a PhD. I did my dissertation work uh, primarily on residential energy efficiency, which sounds super boring, but it's really trying to understand how the information ecosystem within our homes could help us improve our, our behavior. And then on the side, I started studying media. Um, I worked with organizations like Story of Stuff Project and Invisible Children. And then afterwards, uh, after a brief stint in government and academia, I started Sea Change so that I could just keep doing this work with nonprofits and government organizations without having to worry about the overhead or the the red tape of the government or a university to do so. That's so awesome, Beth. Um, I know you've worked with a lot of great organizations doing some uh, really amazing and impactful work, I think, especially in the in the long run as it uh, ripples throughout other areas. Uh, but let's take a half step back real quick. And for those that might not know, might not be geeks like me, for example, what is behavioral science? How would you define it? Yeah, so behavioral science, it's kind of the the cooler, newer nomenclature for what used to be called social science uh, when we were younger. But behavioral science is really the empirical study of human behavior, human behavior and its influences as well as its causes. So behavioral science broadly encompasses the fields of psychology, sociology, political science, education, behavioral economics, um, and informatics and human factors, and probably a few more that I missed, but really anything, any, any study that's looking at how do we behave, what influences that, and what can we do about it? That's a great definition. And so 
as part of that, there are two sides to it, right? There's the, the theory and the, and the methods. Yeah, the way I think about, and my training, uh, as you said, is kind of broadly interdisciplinary. It's in something called social ecology. But if you think about any discipline, whether that's biology, um, ecology, psychology, any discipline has kind of two things. One is the level of analysis that it studies, so kind of the theory that encompasses it about what matters, and the other are the methods that are used to solve it. So if you think, if you're studying um, a pond, right? A hydrologist would study the water, uh, um, a geologist, the rocks, a biologist, the fish, and an ecologist studies the pond. Similarly, any discipline in science always has kind of theories or ideas about what matters and how, how independent variables affect dependent variables, and then methods that are used. And every behavioral science discipline might use different methods from qualitative research into experimentation, conjoint analysis, things like that. So you've done a lot of work, I know, with nonprofits, and I was uh, excited to actually work with you on one project. Um, how can or do or should nonprofits be uh, considering and incorporating behavioral science into their work and their communications? What aspects of it really apply? Yeah, kind of following what we were just talking about, if you think about these two sides, theory and methods, one, the first is applying behavioral insights into your work. There's a lot of things that we've learned collectively over the past decades, centuries. If you if you go back into philosophy before they were actually calling it science, a lot of the ideas about what it means to be happy and why we care and virtue date back to Aristotle. Um, but if we look more recently into like published annals of, of literature, you can look at what's worked. So if you're trying to send out an annual donor letter and increase the number of people that participate, there's research on that. There are insights on how people respond to gain and loss, how people respond to information, how people respond to color, um, to normative information about what others are doing. So applying behavioral insights into your work, um, there's significant evidence there's some of the work I did, I spent, as I said, a brief stint in government participating with the social and behavioral sciences team in the White House. And a lot of that work was applying behavioral insights into different governmental programs with the hope of increasing participation rates and, and improving outcomes. And then the second side of it are methods. So you can apply these insights. You can go, oh, well, I heard this thing that if you do X, it'll lead to Y. But Test. So there's this idea, trust and verify, right? There's this old adage, only half of marketing works. We don't know which half. That's lazy. You can test, right? So you can apply behavioral insights and then make sure that you're going in place and test testing. Also, the other goal is customizing. While there are kind of broad insights and broad ideas about how humans behave, every different area, region, behavioral context is is different. And so understanding the unique attributes of the community that you're reaching and the problem that you are trying to solve will help you apply those insights more effectively. So how can, uh, for can you give us an example of how um, a nonprofit might use behavioral science in some of their campaigns or some of their even grant applications? How, how does it factor in? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of research studying is social norms. Um, so, for example, um, we found when I was in graduate school, a couple of my colleagues, um, we were, we had put out, we had done a, a conference and we're just trying to improve literally the number of people that filled out the conference 
survey after we all have that problem, right? Any of us who put on events. Uh, and we put in, we added one letter, one sentence into the letter that said, into the email that went out, that had been going out for years that said like, dear person, thank you for coming to the conference, please fill out the survey. And we said, join 70% of people fill out this, join people, the other people who are filling out this survey. And we saw a statistically significant, a five to 8% bump in the percentage of people that were filling out this conference survey. That finding has been replicated so many times. Actually, one of the original behavioral insights team studies in England that they brought over to the US when we launched it here was looking at, at, at adding that same kind of sentence into the letter that the IRS sends to people who pay their taxes late. It works there. Um, there was a company called OPA that was founded on the fact that sending that normative information, if you've ever received a bill from your energy utility that tells you how much you're using compared to your neighbors, that was started by somebody who had read behavioral science research that was published right here in California showing that learning how much energy or water your neighbors used influenced your behavior. That company, Opower, after about a decade was sold to Oracle for $565 million. So the power um, of this to, to save enough energy in homes that you can value a company at that amount. And there's other things on the report, but that was really the core principle. So you can do things like that. Also looking at some of the research we did in those, those same reports, those same energy reports, we started studying imagery. So we found, and this finding has been replicated in other places, that if you replace a photo without people, most of those reports had photos of like, water heaters and light bulbs. And if you put people in the photos, it increased people's likelihood to click on the information and to take action. It increased their likelihood to engage. Um, also, if you are doing donors, this is research that Paul Slovit conducted going back um, and others going back a few decades called Compassion Collapse, that if you are trying to get people to donate to support um, a cause that affects people, showing actually one person is more effective than showing a group of people. So those are just a few, but there's a ton of behavioral insights that if you apply and when you take in together, if you're getting a percent increase here and a percent here and 2% here, you can see how those add up to really huge increases in the response to any of your campaigns. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the type of work that you do in behavioral economics and behavioral sciences as, as a broad subject, because it directly affects user experience and story, right? It's it's the story that we're telling. It's the way that we present certain stories and how we frame it so that people respond in a way that they might not if we didn't use some of these tools and, and concepts. So it really gets into our core, the core of our psychology and social, social norms and triggers for us to then... Uh, activate the good that, that we want people to, to take. I remember a similar study to the one that you're talking about where, uh, and this is being done to this day, they would, they put cards in bathrooms in hotels. Do you, do you remember that one about trying to get people to stop just throwing their uh, towels on the floor every single day? Yeah, that was Noah Goldstein and, and Vlad Griskovakis ran the initial study on that. And similarly, it was this, uh, not quite peer pressure, what do you call it? Uh, the, the desire to uh, be, like other people who were stayed in that same room before you. So just by saying the previous people who stayed in this room used the same towels for, I think they said two or three days or something, that sentence crucially just changed everything in terms of how often people would have their laundry done. Yeah, and that was really interesting because actually saying people who stayed in this room was more effective than people who stay in this hotel. So it's just this like, this desire for consistency. We desire consistency with our past behavior and with others around us. Um, and yeah, that's been found in, in so many so many different domains. And I think what you said, the story really matters. And, and that's why it's important that we don't just 
that, that you understand the context of your audience and your nonprofit and your brand. Because if you just apply these, because your brand, your nonprofit has its own story. And so you have to remain consistent. One of the studies, and I love when something I do fails as much as when it succeeds, because that's when learning happens. Um, we applied some huge body of work on personalization and the importance of personalization and kind of creating a relationship. And we worked with a major utility and we worked on like a really more personal, casual, friendly, like trying to really build rapport letter as a welcome program. And we attenuated effectiveness with some of the changes we made. And what we realized, and we followed up and did some qualitative research and reached out to people who had received them, a small sample of people, like 10 or 20, you don't have to spend a lot of money doing this. And we found that and I got some of the ideas for the language in there from work I had done with invisible children who had huge, great response rates to their messaging and had this fun brand where they they had, I remember them, I did my first survey, they rewrote the survey invite. And I was like, I know how to write a survey invite. And they just made it cute. They made it on brand for them. They were like, we love you. You love us. Tell us about it. 10 minutes, easy breezy. Right. And, and I was like, kind of cheesy, but it worked, right? They got this huge response rate. That email literally got, um, somebody screenshotted it and posted it on the Invisible Children Facebook. It was like, easy breezy, Ben Keezy, anything for you. So I tried to apply these insights thinking like, this is it. there's a huge body of work on this. It worked here. But what I found when we talked to people was it didn't match the brand. That messaging didn't match the story of that of that energy utility. People don't want their energy utility to say easy breezy because that's not the brand. That's not the narrative. That's not the relationship you have. So it's really important that you can pull these insights, but really think about what is authentic for you. And that's why the idea of thinking about story and thinking about relationship matters. And that's why, where I caution against just like writ large applying behavioral economics insights is that you really need to take caution and think about like who you are and what relationship you have. And if you don't like it, if you want to be more fun, then you're going to need to spend a couple years building that and kind of changing your brand, changing the story of who you are and how you relate to people until you get to the point where you can start saying easy breezy. Because there are definitely some uh, companies I know in the in great uh, large um, um, industries that do exactly that. They they go counter the the norms and attract people who are like, oh, this is so, so much more personal. This is so much more interesting. Um, there are insurance companies, health insurance companies that, that do that, that say, oh, we're not like you know, some big random organization out there somewhere. We're just people to, uh, and we want to have uh, interactions with you and be sure that you are doing well. And it is really effective. But I, I really like what you're talking about um, personalizing, because even if you have your brand voice, you don't have to talk to everybody the same way, nor should you. And so um, can you talk a little bit more about not applying one overall strategy or approach to everybody that you're trying to speak to? Yeah. So, so kind of persona or segmentation and just, and just to that point. So those companies, I'm a member of one of those health insurance companies. I have Oscar. I love Oscar. I love that. Like they sent me, um, they sent me band-aids and I forgot about it. I just put them in my, in my medicine cabinet and then I hurt myself and I took out the band-aid. I opened it and it was like super cute. And it said, Charlie bit me. And it literally made me laugh out loud. I loved it. Also, that attracts, so the thing in a competitive marketplace, Oscar's attracting people like us who love that brand, right? So there's so there's kind of a fit there, right? Like people are, are finding themselves with Rocket for their mortgages and Lemonade and Oscar and going to Zappos to buy shoes because they're attracted to that. So there's a little bit of a, a reciprocation there, right? Because they're drawing in people who want that. Um, 
So you will find that when you put your brand out there, you're telling the world who you want to work with you. So Oscar knows straight out they're not getting as many people that are maybe that maybe want a little more stayed buttoned up type of um, healthcare company. There are people who think that that is not what a healthcare company should sound and look like, right? Um, so when you really put your brand out front and center, you're going to start getting the, the segments, the customer, you know, the market segments that are attracted to you. That's kind of the thousand true fans methodology. That said, once you have customers and or, or, or uh, what, what would you call for not Beneficiaries. Beneficiaries, thank or you. Or mm -hmm. um, you might still want to segment them. Also, you might be serving really wide groups. So I work now with Medicaid providers and they do serve a, num you know, a large number of different audiences. And so you might, it's really important to look and say, what are the commonalities and differences and can I further customize and personalize to different groups? And that's often called audience segmentation. And there's different ways to do it. You can design thinking as you kind of go in a room and like think about who you think your different audiences are. I'm a scientist, so I'm gonna say again, trust, try that and verify. I think the best way to do it is inductively, not deductively. So you collect data, run a survey, and then look, how do you can run, you can work with somebody to statistically analyze how people fall into groups on their own. What you'll often find is that people are not being grouped as much by demographics. You might not have like older women and younger men. You might have people who really crave certainty or people who are really focused on security or people who are working from home or people who travel on the weekends. And it depends on what your what your industry is, right? I do a lot of work in energy. And so we find that people cluster based on their lifestyle um, and how much they how much time they spend in or out of the house, whether they have children, more. And some of that will, will fall along demographic lines, but it doesn't have to. And the power right now of the internet and of, and, and of all the information we have is that we don't have to rely on those old segments. So if you think about media, for example, when we were thinking about if somebody was, was marketing for a Jimmy Buffett concert, 30 years ago, the main thing you would think, the best predictor of being a Jimmy Buffett fan was whether you were a man, maybe between 50 and 65 in a Southern Atlantic state. But now we don't have to think that. We can go, we can go the best predictor of a Jimmy Buffett fan is someone who likes Jimmy Buffett on Facebook. And the second best predictor is someone who's been tagged in a photo with somebody who likes Jimmy Buffett on Facebook in the last six months. Because our Facebook friends don't actually don't actually predict our behavior, but the people were tagged in photos, our real life friends do. Um, so you can start looking for newer ways. You don't have to think about just grouping people because not only is that less effective than it could be, but in this day and age, it's a little it's a little off tone, right? We don't wanna be putting people into sociodemographic buckets and saying, this is what old people and young people and white people and black people think. So if we can find even new ways with interests and values in order to group people, you'll be even more effective. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Actually, now that you brought that up, um, when it comes to being a Jimmy Buffett fan, uh, at some point, does that become part of one's identity? How do we how do we focus on people's identities and getting them to self-identify, if you will, with our causes using the techniques that you study and implement? Yeah, identity is huge, right? Identity is um, is a really powerful thing. And, and the thing is, we all have multiple identities. So um, what you're trying to do is, is often prime 
a self prime an identity, right? So that it feels self salient to the person. So if you ask me, Beth, what's your identity at any given time, I might, I might be focused, you know, really strongly right now, I feel really strongly my identity is a behavioral scientist, because you're interviewing me as one, right? Um, but I participate in a nonprofit organization called Reboot, that's for Jewish people. And so my identity, you know, I'm very much Jewish in that environment. There's other environments where I feel very much like, a woman or a voter, or I might identify really strongly with my politics or um, a blood donor. And so one way is just to literally uh, prime and push identity. So research has shown, for example, with um, voting appeals, that if you ask people, will you be a voter tomorrow? As opposed to people, are, they had 11% increase in getting people out to the polls over a message that said, will you vote tomorrow? And the, the latter, will you vote tomorrow actually grammatically, it just sounds much cleaner to me and tighter. I'd much rather say, will you vote tomorrow? Come out and join, or maybe come out and join us and vote or join. That's why social norms also work. Join the 80% of, of people in your precinct who voted last election, right? But just be a voter is another way. So you can prime social norms by saying there's a group of people that do this. And we see a lot, There's there were a lot of issues in the past couple of decades around messaging strategies uh, that did the exact opposite. If you look at some of the um, youth drinking and it's really turned a corner, you used to get the message when you were a young person that everyone else was drinking and it was horrible and you shouldn't. And if you notice the messaging has changed, it's not every kid drinks. So there's this identity out there that is positive that's not drinking in college, right? It's not just focused on we often think that we think, and we think that the best messaging strategy to somebody that is is one that really focuses on um, on outcomes, right? Because we'd all like to think that we're like Mr. Spock, which is like measuring, carefully calculating what's best for us and what's best for the community. But we're much more like Captain Kirk. We're just rash and brash, and we care about what we look like. So really, anything that you can do to make the behavior observable, to make it salient, to make people think that others are doing it, to make people think that others approve and not make them think. This is important because I'm starting to sound manipulative. You have to use real data, right? So for a behavior, for example, like, um, and this is research that Greg Sparkman's been doing at Stanford and now at Princeton, for a behavior that's not yet normative, like for example, being a vegetarian, you can't say join 80% of vegetarians. So you can't communicate a social norm that says this is a big identity. What you can do instead is communicate what's called a dynamic norm to say more and more people are giving up meat. More people are eating, are, are, are going participating in Meatless Monday. So you can talk about how something's trending or shifting. And then again, eat mo the most easily, you can just say, be a voter, be a blood donor be one of us. And that means thinking about what is the identity that you're affiliating your supporter with, right? What is what is their identity? What is the what is a hero for your nonprofit look like? Who are they? Is it be a proud progressive? Is it be a voter? Is it be somebody who cares about is it be a, a champion for charter schools in Delaware, right? Like figure out what that identity is. What is that hero? What is that persona? And then do what you can to kind of craft that. And then you'll find those people. They'll come to you and then you reinforce it. You reinforce it to them individually and you reinforce it to them collectively. You're a part of a group of people that do this. And that'll start to kind of become a, virtu a positive virtuous cycle. So uh, I love all of this stuff. Um, but I want to take it a half step back because not everybody's going to instantly identify themselves as a voter or decide that they want to be and now are a vegetarian or, or something along those lines. But there is the, the foot and door phenomenon, right, where we could try to get them to 
um, self-identify on a smaller scale and then slowly bring them up further? Am I thinking of the right thing with Robert Cialdini's work? Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of, yeah. Laddering or, or the foot in the door effect. Yeah. You can. So if you ask people to do a small behavior and then you come back and ask them to do a larger behavior, um, they're often more likely to do that. There's also kind of a, a door and face where you can come in with a really big appeal. And when somebody says no, you can ask them to compromise. Ironically, both of those can be effective again, under certain circumstances. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you can, you can try and ladder or build. I think often there's, there's a saying I learned back from way before I went back to school, which was like participation precedes donation. So one of the best things you can do um, in terms of an, an initial behavior is ask people for their thoughts, for their advice. People love giving advice. We love being smarter than each other, right? So you can just engage people and say, you know, what do you think matters in education? What what do you care about? And then from something they said, we really have this desire, as I talked about, for consistency. So if you get somebody to talk about caring about something, you might be more likely to get them to do something. I would also just say, just caution that your cause, no matter what it is, isn't for everyone. Um, so you're better off building a base. I really, when I was in graduate school, as I said, I was really focused on, on, um, on, uh, climate change. And I started getting really interested in climate deniers because it just like, <laughs> what, why, who, where, what can I do about it? Um, and then I had a, uh, I was in social movements class and, and, um, and, and I think it was my social movements professor uh, said in class, like Martin Luther King, to our knowledge, historically, never addressed publicly the KKK, right? He never spoke at KKK meetings. He didn't go after that group, right? He built a base. And so so I, I think you, you need to focus on like, you know, think about concentric circles, right? So there are some people that like are not worth your time going after even for that starting behavior. So really figure out like, you know, the, who who those those concentric circles are, who I hate low hanging fruit. But there's this idea of like, don't preach the choir, but the choir is not meant to be preached to. I've never understood that. The choir is like on the stage singing to your right congregation, yeah. like train the choir. Right. So you can get so you can, again, start getting people to communicate with each other. And then, yes, train them with behaviors. There's just again, behavioral science is really messy. There is a risk with that laddering or, or um, foot in the door called moral licensing, that there's a phenomena that we can do one good thing, that when we do one positive action, we kind of pat ourselves on the back, we morally license, and we're less likely to do another. So you, this is where it's kind of hard because there is significant evidence that, that that foot in the door, that laddering works. And there's an equal body of work that says you might get somebody to go, oh, cool. I already helped your nonprofit. Bye-bye. I'm going to go eat ice cream now. And so you want to be careful at how you do that. And you want to reinforce and build reinforcement. And the way to do it is not just incentivize, but to build identity. So with everything they do, connect them to you. Build something that connects them to you. Beth, this has turned into a fantastic masterclass. Thank you so much. Um, the uh, What you were saying before about you can't please everyone. You can't go after everyone. You don't need to go after the climate deniers. Um, in my mind, basically, to, to reduce it really simply, haters going to hate. And you don't need to try to convince the haters to, to start loving you. You could actually even use the fact that there are so many haters out there to recruit more people to your cause because you need masses to, to counterbalance the, the masses out there. Um, 
I don't want to monopolize too much of your time this morning. I really appreciate it. But we're talking around behavior, and I really want to get to BJ Fogg's behavioral uh, behavioral model, the uh, B equals uh, MAP. How do we get people to take actions? Because ultimately, whether or not a nonprofit succeeds depends on people stepping up, becoming heroes, as we like to call them, and taking actions that further the mission of the organization, hopefully further the mission that they uh, feel an affinity for towards themselves. But how do we apply this B equals MAP towards getting people to do more good? Yeah, so so BJ is a psychologist at Stanford, um, and and he's he's put out a, a number of different really great theories, um, and one of them is this framework that says behavior equals motivation times ability times a prompt, um, and it's 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 um, a simple model. I don't think it includes everything um, that you could possibly manipulate or or use, um, but but what he's talking about is is that to get somebody to act, they have to be motivated in some way, um, which is largely true, although it is really possible to get people to take actions without being strongly motivated if they're, if they're corollary motivations or if you just make it easy for them, easy, popular, and fun. Um, as another behavioral scientist, Ed Maybach at George Mason says, just make it easy, popular, and fun. And those are that's kind of his model, um, which also has a lot of empirical evidence and they've done a lot of great work. But BJ talks about motivation, make sure that they're motivated in some way um, to engage in the behavior ability. That relates to kind of uh, self-efficacy that they have, that they feel that they are able to engage in that behavior. And I think self-efficacy is really interesting um, People think of it as kind of a univariate construct, but you can think of ability or self-efficacy in, in, in terms of two things. One is behavioral efficacy and the other is response. And I think that really, 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 really matters for nonprofits. So behavioral efficacy is, can I do it? And response efficacy is, will it matter? And what we see in terms of like addressing pressing social issues is if we just think ability means something that you can do, people can vote. A lot of young people weren't voting for decades, not because they didn't know how, because they didn't think voting mattered. So when you think about ability, it's not just identifying a behavior that they can do and making it easy for them, but it's making sure that they believe that that action will make a difference, either individually or collectively. And then prompt just means getting it on their radar. So BJ's model, the, the BMAP model, really is focused on building daily tiny habits on getting people to like run, floss, eat better. Um, you're, and, and you might have a nonprofit that's focused on that. If you're looking at people kind of getting engaged politically, I think it also make, it also, it's also important to look at like easy, fun, and popular, that those things really matter as well. And like building that kind of social framework around your cause. But when it comes to just getting somebody or yourself just to meditate in the morning, um, having that prompt or brush your teeth or whatever, flush your teeth, let's say we already brush, flush your teeth, um, whatever those habits are, building habits is making sure that there's a motivation there and that it's intrinsic, as intrinsic as possible. Um, the ability that you know what you need to do and what the outcome will be if you continue doing it. And then that prompt or trigger, whether that prompt is like something that's external, like um, an alarm that comes into you, or it's I'm going to floss after I brush my teeth. The other thing he says is try and find, like you were talking about, one tiny thing that you can do. So instead of saying I'm going to floss twice a day, you can say I'm going to floss one tooth. And then the thing is, once you pull the floss out and stick it in your mouth and you floss a tooth, kind of feels wasteful just to throw the floss away, right? So instead of running, it's I'm going to put my shoes on and leave the house. So finding that way to 
find your own foot in the door so that you'll start doing more and more. Yeah, and I think that uh, model can actually be applied even broader uh, beyond just like physical actions in, in the physical world, um, even on a donation page using that kind of system where you inspire people, you, you help them feel motivated, you help them uh, see that they have the ability to affect change. You make it very simple for them. You remove all kinds of friction also within the realm of ability. And then you give them a clear prompt, which is that call to action, which uses some of the verbiage that you were talking about earlier, the kind of language of inclusivity, and we could all do this together. Um, and you can specifically, you can make a difference. I think just that framework tells a great story that works for taking small actions or large actions towards a common good. Yeah, definitely. So um, I don't wanna uh, run too much over here, but I would love to just ask you, um, we talked about BJ Fogg's book, we mentioned uh, Robert Cialdini, uh, where should nonprofits start if they haven't started thinking about applying behavioral science to their own uh, organizations? Um, my gosh, we're, we're in a, a huge kind of push behavioral science renaissance right now. There are so many resources. Katie Milkman's book just came out this year. Um, some of my favorites um, are Nudge, which was written. So there, there are three times in the history of economics, psychologists have won the Nobel. Um, the first was Herbert Simon, which was several decades ago about work. Um, the second was Amos Tversky and, Danny, and Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman has a book, it is thick, called Thinking Fast and Slow, but it is like the best primer to just how our brain works. It's not going to give you tips and tricks and tactics as much. It does a little bit, but it really gives you the foundation. Um, and then the third group, the third pair were Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler um, for, for their body of work, but kind of the book that encapsulates that is called Nudge. Um, those are great places to start. Robert Cialdini, um, his most uh, popular book came out in the 1980s called Influence That, unlike Thinking Fast and Slow, is skinny and red and cute and an easy read. But there are tons of great podcasts. This is one of them these days. Um, Freakonomics, which is another book that talks about some of these ideas. They have a great podcast. There's tons of resources. 80s podcast, Choiceology. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there really are a lot of resources and there are a lot of behavioral scientists um, that are out there. So I would say, try and reach out if you can. The best thing is because like I said, applying these things requires an understanding of, of what's called mediation and moderation, which is how does it work and for whom does it work? So if you can find a professor or a grad student, doctoral students are always looking for real, would love doing applied research. I find that more and more and more, I, my phone is ringing constantly. When I was in grad school and I said I wanted to do applied work, people thought I was crazy. Now there are more and more students interested in it and wanting to really get applied research experience because when they go out, there are more and more jobs. I just, uh, one of my, one of my graduate, the graduate students in, uh, at Sea Change just left us for the summer to spend the summer at Weight Watchers as an intern. Almost every major corporation has behavioral science in units now. Google has it, Facebook has it, Intuit has it, right? And so, so they're looking for experience. So if you can, there are great books, there are great resources, but really meet a behavioral scientist. We're really nice people and we want to do good. You will not only let them help you, but you'll also be helping advance science because every time we can work with a nonprofit to apply real world data, as opposed to studying college students, it actually improves science. You'll be helping other nonprofits after you as well. So that's my suggestion and plug. 
Awesome. I really appreciate that. Um, on the practical side, also, there are several things that you recommended throughout uh, this interview today, including uh, segmentation, including trying to figure out uh, testing uh, certain things and, and, and variables in your messaging and in your work in general that I think uh, nonprofits should be looking at as well. Um, we're going to link to all of the books and other resources that you mentioned. If you know any others, drop them and we will add them to our show notes as well. If viewers want to follow up with you specifically and with Sea Change, how can they do that? Yeah, just visit our website, seachangeinstitute.com. You can drop me a line from there or you can email me directly. I'm bcarlin at seachangeinstitute.com. Um, yeah, and I would I would love, I will take um, a consult. If somebody sends me a message I and say, or on LinkedIn and say, you have a question or you wanna meet, I will send you a link to a 30 minute consult and I'm happy to talk with people. I believe so deeply, like I said, I started my career in nonprofit and I got my PhD because I thought that behavioral science could help nonprofits do the work that we do in the world and that you do in the world better. So feel free to reach out, no strings attached. I would love to spend a half an hour with you. I love that. And as someone who has uh, picked Beth's brain many, many times over the course of the years that we've been friends, uh, I could tell you in 30 minutes, much like this interview, you're going to get a whole lot of value from someone like her. So thank you so much, Beth, for joining us today. And thank you, everybody who uh, tuned in to watch, to listen. If you liked it, please do leave us a review, give us a rating, subscribe, spread the word. We want to help as many nonprofits as possible. That's why Beth and I got into doing this type of work. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.